0: if you have your Bibles, you might open them to the Book of Colossians. That's uh, where we are, where we've been, and where we'll continue to be uh, up until the end of September, I believe. So uh, one of the things that I really enjoy are, are infographics. Infographics just have this wonderful way of taking some information and some research and putting it together in a way that's easy to understand. And I came across one recently that was just really interesting to me, and I don't have time to dwell on on it. Um, and I don't know if it'll be as interesting to you. But it was a study that was done this last year on what they call the most beloved brands. And so advertisers they think about, you know, they make their products and their services and then they try to get you uh, to buy those services or those products. And so they do this thing called advertising. But kind of the gold standard of advertising is if your brand is what they call a beloved brand. It's In other words, people don't just buy it. They they love it. They're They're dedicated to it. And it's kind of the holy grail. And there's a whole lot of research that goes behind this but I want to show you there was a study done recently and they broke down uh, three generations and talked about their most beloved brands and I I want to just kind of walk through this with you so the first is uh, Gen Z Millennials. So uh, Generation Z and Millennials are different groups that go anywhere from 10 years old to 41. But they kind of took a, a cross-section of people 18 to 34 to find out what their most beloved brands were. And I thought this was interesting. So in people uh, 18 to 34, here are their 10 most beloved brands. PlayStation is number one, all right? And then Amazon is number two. Amazon makes every list of the three. So PlayStation, Amazon, Target uh, is number three. Disney is number four. And I have to admit, five and six are weird to me. So like uh, Ford is number five and six is Jeep. And Ford, I was like, is Ford even in business still? Do they, like they, I don't know, I just was raised, you know, found on road dead. But anyways, it's like Ford and, and Jeep and Apple is number seven. Apple made all the list. YouTube is their eighth most beloved brand. I think it's the most obnoxious brand. And then um, Xbox is nine and Nintendo is 10. So three of the top 10 beloved brands are like gaming consoles, which is kind of interesting. And then we go to the next generation, uh, Gen X. And this is a smaller section of Gen X. Gen X goes 42 through 57. This is 35 through 54 year olds. And this is a little bit different in its order. Um, Their favorite most beloved brand is Apple. Uh, Secondly is Amazon, which made every list. And third is Netflix. So they're the only ones that had Netflix on there, but they love Netflix. In fact, people in this group said they couldn't live without Netflix. Um, And then here we go again. Jeep is uh, four and Ford is six. So again, they're, they're both on that list. And Disney is five. And then we have Samsung. So what's interesting is they said that uh, they love Apple more than Samsung, but they're willing to pay more for Samsung than Apple. I don't understand. And then Xbox is next on the list. Then Walmart is number nine. And Nike is their 10th most beloved brand. So get a little bit of that. And then we go to the next one, which I think is really interesting. It's the baby boomers. Now, baby boomers are broken into two groups these days, uh, ages 58 to 76, but they took a small section, just uh, 55 through 64. Now you're going to notice this list is different. Number one is Amazon, which is on every list. No Ford and no Jeep. We got Toyota as number two, all right? And then Apple is number three. And then Costco right? Co- Costco is number four. In fact, people said that basically they couldn't live without Costco. I, I get that. Number five is Macy's. Is Macy's even a thing still? Are they, are they I didn't even know they were still in business. Uh, Macy's, now here's where it gets interesting. Uh, number six is Hershey's. So did you notice on the other two groups, there are no food brands on there. Okay, Baby Boomers, we got three, baby. All right, we got Hershey's. And then seven is, is HP, uh, which I thought was interesting. And then uh, eight is Pillsbury. right? And then nine is Kellogg's and ten is Pepsi. So I guess we really got four brands on there that are uh, that are food related. So you can see they're really different. So the reason I mentioned this to you is because I was thinking a lot about advertising and of course so much of this is the result of advertising and what advertisers have done. One definition of advertising is this. To expose a supposed gap in your lifestyle while promising satisfaction uh, and wholeness via a particular product. Or let me put it a different way. The goal of advertising is to produce a dissatisfaction gap between what you have and what someone is offering. And what they wanna do is create a gap between these. We call it the dissatisfaction gap. There's an expectation that the advertised product is gonna fill that gap. It's gonna make you happier or, or more entertained Or maybe make you smarter or healthier or wealthier or whatever it is. But they want you to believe that there is a gap between what you have and what they're offering. And they want you to be dissatisfied with that gap. And to do something with that. Now I say that because we are in the book of Colossians. It's written by a guy named the Apostle Paul. It was written to a church in Colossae. It was a, a small church. Maybe only a, a few years old. And there were a small church that were, they were meeting in a house. So there wasn't a lot of them. And Paul's talking to this church. And apparently uh, there were people who were, who were coming into this church. Uh, some teachers and some people just attending. Who were saying, you know what? Jesus is good good, but Jesus isn't enough. In other words, they were trying to create a dissatisfaction gap amongst believers. And maybe they would go around and, you know, after church they would shake hands and say, hey, we should go out to have coffee. And then they would talk about how, well, this is what you have. And Jesus is good, but he's, he's not really enough. You need to add some things to Jesus, right? There's a dissatisfaction gap. This is what they're doing. Now, we talk about Gnosticism and, and, and Judaism or, or legalism a lot in this series. Gnosticism is a, is a Greek word, Gnostic, that simply means uh, knowledge or secret knowledge. So some people came in and said, the Bible's good, but it's not enough. The Bible gives you knowledge, but you need secret knowledge that you can't find in the Bible. And you need rules and you, you need legalism. So they would come in and tell Christians, you know, oh, do, do you know the secret knowledge? Because that'll fill the gap and make you more fulfilled as a Christian. Or are you doing the right rituals? Are are you observing the right holy days? Or Jesus is good, but he's not enough. So you need to observe the Sabbath and that'll make you right with God. Or you need to experience some kind of vision or interaction with angelic beings. Or you need to, we'll see this in the weeks to come. Or you need to deny yourself uh, certain foods and drinks and comforts. And that will make you good enough. Jesus is good, but not quite good enough. So you're gonna do some extra stuff. Uh, Our passage today is Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to read for us beginning in verse 8. Just 8, 9, and 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let me pray for us. Father, pray for us this morning as we open your word. I pray that you might show to us any way in which we have somehow made Christ not enough. And that we would be reminded this morning through the work of your spirit and and, and the word. That Christ is all that we need. He is sufficient for our salvation to make us right with you. To sanctify us, to help us walk through this world on a daily basis. Reveal your word and your son to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well,. I have seen over the years, uh, just in my experience in the church, we, we think about Gnosticism, we think about legalism, and as we read the book of Colossians, we think, well, this is for people who lived 2,000 years ago, but I would argue that actually Gnosticism and legalism uh, has been with us all through the years and is still in the church today. It's used to create, again, a dissatisfaction gap for believers between who Christ is and, and what they think we need in order to be fulfilled in Christ. And it plays out in a lot of different ways. So over the years, for instance, I've talked with believers who will say, well, Jesus is good and the Bible is good, but um, just any old Bible isn't good enough. You have to have a particular version of the Bible. So for instance, and I'm not putting, you know, the King James down, but it's, I've been around people who have said, if you don't use the King James Bible, brother, you ain't using the Bible, right? And so you hear that sometimes. And that's this form of of legalism. Uh, Over the years, I've seen this done with clothing, Right? Oh, well, when you go to church, uh, you, you got to wear your best. You got to wear, guys got to wear suits and ties and women need to wear dresses. Nothing else will, will satisfy God. I've been in other churches where they're like, absolutely, you can absolutely not wear suits and ties and dresses. Right? You got to wear like ripped jeans and that kind of stuff. Because that's legit and that's authentic and that's what God wants. I've been in churches where they're legalistic about the music. Right. We only sing hymns in this church. We only sing the old songs because the new songs everyone knows are shallow and there's nothing going on there and the old hymns have handed down to us the faith. I've been in churches where they say we only sing new songs. Only new songs. Only songs written in the last 25 minutes because you know, that's, what, that's what's authentic and that's what comes from the heart and that's what the, lo- the Lord wants. Uh, I've talked to people say you know actually you can't use instruments in the church. That, that's not biblical. Or sometimes a specific kind of preaching and I hear this a lot. In our church, we only preach through the Bible verse by verse, book by book. It's the only way that we do it. And if your church does it any other way, I've heard people say, then, you know, that's not biblical and that's, God can't bless that. I've heard other pastors say, we teach topically through the Bible. And, you know, that's how Jesus did it. Um, and that's the way that we do it. And if you don't do it that way, then you're really not, uh, you know, you don't know what God really has for you as a church. You can't be what he wants you to be. I've talked to Christians who have adopted certain diets for spiritual reasons, right? If you eat this, you're clearly out of the will of God. You need to adopt this diet. And then spiritually, you'll be in a better place. Uh, Christians who say, don't drink alcohol, right? Or Christians who say, you must drink alcohol. By that, I mean churches that'll say, if you don't use wine in communion, then it's not communion, And this is a legalistic rule in a church. Churches that'll say, well, you have to pray a specific prayer in order for God to hear you. Or when you worship hands must be in the air. Or it doesn't count. Or if hands are in the air it doesn't count. Uh, you know Christians will say we don't celebrate Christmas. Uh, that's pagan. We don't celebrate Halloween. That's demonic. We don't celebrate Easter. Everyone knows that, you know, that Christ didn't rise on that particular day. Uh, churches where they say you have to observe the Sabbath and observe it this way. Or, or it doesn't count. Or you must school this way. Uh, if you have kids you need to, you need to homeschool. Or God is really angry with you. Or you need a private school. You need a public school. How can you be salt and light? Um, Or you must belong to a particular denomination. I still hear this a lot. You go to what church? Oh, well that's good, but that really doesn't, that's not enough. You need to go to the right particular denomination. And we have a way of turning things into um, legalism and Gnosticism. I even think about what's happened with the vaccine. Um, over the last couple years how it's been turned uh, from a medical thing into a moral imperative. Have you noticed that? And you'll hear some Christians say, if, if you don't get the vaccine, then you hate everyone and you want everyone to die. Like I've actually heard that, right? Or, or other people who say, if you, got, if you get the vaccine, then you're just a sheep and just wait because they're going to flip the switch and everything's going to go to heck. It's going to be terrible. And I mention this because all of this stuff, none of these things that we've talked about make you a better Christian. They don't have any benefit. It's just captivity into legalism. And so... In this passage, Paul calls us to examine our lives and to think about if there's any way in which we've done this. So he begins by calling us to resist. He's going to call us to resist something in this passage. In verse 8, again, notice what he says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Uh, Philosophy. Philosophia is the Greek word here and it simply means the love of wisdom. That's what philosophy is in the Greek. Paul's not anti-philosophy here. In that culture philosophy was anything that dealt with uh, the fundamental nature of knowledge, of reality, of of existence, of what is true. So in that sense uh, Christianity is definitely philosophical. That is it makes claims regarding the reality and the truth and the existence and values of life. But we would say that Christianity is more than philosophical because it claims to be the truth and the wisdom. And in John fourteen six, Jesus says I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Christianity is something that we can talk about philosophically, but we'd say fundamentally it's even more than that, because it is the truth. Now, Paul's going to warn about philosophy, but not just any philosophy. He wants, us to, he wants to warn us about a particular kind of philosophy, and he uses four things to describe this philosophy in our text today and the first one is this and I have this in your notes he says we're talking about a philosophy that is deceptive so let me just say this right now as we kind of dive into this I'm going to say a couple of things and give a couple of illustrations um, that uh, might make you angry I hope it doesn't make you angry but um, we're just going to go down this road and see how it goes so he talks about empty deceit empty deceit is like this imagine that you're driving down the road and you see this house and it's beautiful from the curb and you go in the house and there's nothing inside, right? That's kind of what empty deceit is. We hear empty deceit and empty promises every day. We hear it from advertisers as we talked about earlier, right? They promise things that they can't deliver, we hear it from politicians all the time who make promises that they either can't or, or won't deliver on. We hear it sometimes from educational institutions, right? Get this degree and your life will be perfect and you'll make all the money you want and your job will be so satisfying. And Or we get it from employers, right, who say, you know work here and this is what your life will be like. You get the job and find out. It wasn't quite what they promised. Religions are like that. Or, you know, even iPhone apps. Get this app. I saw an ad yesterday. Get this app and you'll be completely organized for the rest of your life. Right? I don't even know. I haven't looked at that app. I know this. There's no way it's going to deliver on that. Stuff that sounds promising, but it's empty to see. Because it won't, it can't deliver what it's promising. Paul is talking here about spiritual deceit. Paul is saying that there are people out there that are teachers out there. There are religions and cults out there that will make promises, but it's, it's deceitful. It's empty. It will not give you what it's claiming to give you. So for instance, and there's a lot of things we use as examples, but I was reading an article this week about a guy and it reminded me about... Uh, Latter-day Saints. So not to pick on them specifically, but I guess kind of to pick on them specifically. Uh, Mormonism. When we think about Mormonism, Mormonism claims to be Christianity, I would say Christianity plus. It's kind of how they pitch themselves today. So here's one of the sayings in that church that's been around for a long time. As God was, man is. As God is, man can become. That's one of their big models. Let me say it again. As God was, man is And as God is, man can become. The point is this, that they teach that God was once a man. um, That Jesus was once merely a man. That God lived a virtuous life and he progressively uh, moved up from one life to a higher life to a higher life. Eventually he became uh, a God of his own planet and then the God of heaven. And if we join the church, we're told that we can also become a God eventually as we work up the latter. They'll come to your door. Uh, they'll read a few Bible verses. Uh, sometimes when they come to my door I'll ask them. So are you Christians? And they'll say yes we're, we're Christians. And they'll say they believe in Jesus. But they believe in a different Jesus than we preach here. We believe that, that Jesus is part of the Trinity. That he is eternal. That he has always been God. That's not the Jesus that they preach. They believe in what we might call Bible plus. They, they say they accept the Bible. But they also have other writings, things written by men that they will say are on equal footing. And sometimes these things are even more authoritative than the Bible itself. We would call them Bible minus because there's some parts of scripture they deny. And on top of that, we could see Gnosticism for sure because they have these secret rituals like baptism of the dead. There's a guy named Gordon Hall. Uh, for some of you, you maybe you remember like Nautilus. Remember Nautilus Sports Equipment? Um, this guy was the CEO uh, of Nautilus, and uh, back in the 2000s, he did a um, he did an interview with the Arizona Republic, and I want to read just a, a piece of that. He said, "We have always existed as intelligences, as spirits. We are down here to gain a body, as man now as." as man is now, God once was. And as God is now, man can become. And if you believe it, then your genetic makeup is to be a God. And I believe it. That is why I believe I can do anything. My genetic makeup is to be a God. My God in heaven creates worlds and universes, and I believe I can do anything too. And here's the thing, this is a guy who was believed to be intelligent and and to be brilliant. He was a well-known CEO, he was worth hundreds of millions of dollars and yet completely deceived. And this is what Paul is warning us about. Be careful out there. Be careful what you believe as you listen to people teach. Because he was completely deceived. In fact, just kind of as a footnote, he was eventually convicted of fraud and got 23 years uh, in prison. So uh, whatever he was promised didn't quite come true there. And of course, the worst part of it wasn't prison. It was the fact that he was deceived spiritually. Paul says, beware of those who would try to deceive you. And even in the church today, even in some Christian churches or so-called Christian churches, you have pastors today and you can find them on YouTube and you can find their podcasts where they teach, uh, where they deny the deity of Jesus. There are churches today that are considered mainline Christian churches, but they'll tell you that Jesus was born a mere man and he became God later. Maybe at baptism, uh, maybe at the ascension. Uh, There are Christian teachers out there today who deny the Trinity who deny the exclusive claims of Christ, who deny the inspiration of the Bible, who preach a prosperity gospel and a social gospel. Paul says, beware, be careful. Not everyone out there is telling you the truth. He says, be careful of deceptive philosophy. A second thing is this. This philosophy he's warning us about is what we would call human tradition. Human tradition. So human meaning it comes from people, not from God. And tradition meaning it's something that's been handed down from one generation To the next. Um, Maybe it's some belief. Maybe it's ritual. Maybe it's a rule. Maybe it's a principle for living or or a moral code. N.T. Wright in his commentary said this. Tradition can be good when Christ himself works by his spirit to bring his truth to a new generation. Through the witness of the church. In other words, uh, one generation of Christians can pass on to the next generation good things, helpful things, things like creeds. So the creed that we read together earlier has come down through the centuries, handed down from one generation to the next and it's helpful because it reflects scripture, because it reflects the truth of what we find in the Bible and so it's helpful because it's something we can memorize and, you know, take with us wherever we go. Uh, The church has handed down songs. Not every song that's been handed down has been helpful, but some certainly have. Uh, The church has handed down things like prayers. So I'll tell you, until about five years ago, the idea of a prayer book was weird to me. I would, you know, I think if I'm going to pray today, when I pray today, I'm just going to pray a prayer that comes from my heart. But about five years ago, I kind of stumbled across and began to read some prayer books that have been handed down, uh, prayers that were written like a hundred years ago from great men of the faith. And it's so helpful for me. So now in the morning, when I come in before I pray, I open up this book and I read a prayer because these prayers are so deep, they're, they're helpful to me. And so that can be true. Um, things that are handed down as spiritual writings. So for instance, I have a bunch of books in my office, commentaries written from guys. When I, if I have some commentaries and somebody dies uh, who wrote one of those books, I don't just throw it away and go, well, he's dead, so I don't have books by dead guys. I, if it's true, if it's helpful, if it's good, it's something that's been handed down from one generation to the next. They're disciplines. They're biblically derived principles for living and working and, and relationships. But here, he calls it human. And human distinguishes it from Spiritual. He's saying it's not from God, it's from people. And maybe it's something that came from God. Maybe there's an element of truth in it that we find in Scripture, but it's been wrapped up in human tradition and in human rules till you can't recognize the thing that came from God anymore. As one writer put it, it's the transformation of true spirituality into just rules and rituals and and principles. So let me give you a simple uh, uh, picture of what I'm talking about. And I've shared this with you before. When I was in college, I was interning at a church. Uh, It was a good-sized church, and there was just a lot of great men on staff. And so as the lowly intern, my job was just to shadow them and walk around and just listen and kind of absorb in all their wisdom, and they were very wise people. Uh, But my job was mostly in the background. On one particular weekend, right before the worship service started, the team got together and I got to kind of be with them when they prayed before the service. And one of the guys said, so-and-so is out today and we don't have anyone to pray for the offering. We have no one to pray for the offering. And so they looked around and they looked at me and they were like, hey, you want to pray for the offering? And I thought, this is it. I'm being moved up to the big leagues. I get to be in a worship service on the stage and pray for the offering. I was like, yes, I will pray for the offering. And then the pastor of the senior adults looked at me and he noticed. So I was wearing a a, a jacket and a tie but I was wearing Levi's. Really dark Levi's. You could hardly notice. And he said, oh, you're wearing Levi's. I said, yeah. And he said, oh, well then you can't pray for the offering. And they looked around at each other like this is obvious and they walked away. (laughs) It was just kind of standing there confused and heard him wondering what happened and I talked to one of the pastors later and he said well we don't you know we don't let people go on the stage in Levi's and when I asked why he said well because prayer is a very solemn important thing which I would agree with but that's all I got from him I'm like well where did the Levi thing come from well it's just kind of a rule that we have exactly this is the kind of stuff I think that Paul is warning us about Let me give you another example, Um, and I'm not, my my goal isn't to offend anyone this morning, but there is a, uh, uh, something that's been going around Facebook over the last week and a half or so, and I've seen it posted several times. Uh, I haven't seen it posted by anyone in our church, um, but it's been going around, so I'll just point this out. So this has to do with the uh, current, uh, the recent ruling from the Supreme Court. And so people who I know as Christians um, have been posting this. Here's what it says. The Torah, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and later rabbinic sources consider the woman's physical and emotional health before that of the fetus. Until the baby is born, Judaism considers the fetus to be part of the woman's body, and she is never the villain when difficult choices need to be made. And this is by somebody named Rabbi Mara Nathan. Now, I don't know who that rabbi is, but here's what people are kind of tagging at the bottom of this. They're saying this, for those wondering what Jesus would think, Jesus was a Jew. Jews believe women have autonomy over their bodies at every point, and the inference is that Jesus supports abortion. If Jesus were here today, he would support abortion based on this right here. So notice what's going on here, and this is what the reason I'm using this this morning. This is a great modern example of human tradition right there. Right? Notice what they're appealing to. They're referencing the Torah, which I don't know where they're getting this idea in the Torah. We're not given any uh, verses. We're not given any examples there. The Torah um, and extra biblical writings from Jewish traditions. That's all this is. It's an appeal to Jewish tradition. To which I would respond, absolutely. Jesus was a Jew. But Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly rejected the human traditions of the Jewish leaders that conflicted with the Word of God. In fact, to put this on the internet, you'd almost have to have never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Because Jesus had a huge problem with the teachings of the religious leaders of his day. Let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees noticed that Jesus' disciples didn't observe some of the traditions of the elders, some of the human traditions, some of the stuff that was taught in the very things that are being pointed out here. So for instance, the Jewish leaders had this ritualistic washing of their hands. And originally, the seed of it kind of comes from Scripture, but they added all of these rules and how you wash your hands. And if you didn't wash your hands exactly like they said, then they would judge you for that. And they asked Jesus' disciples, why don't your disciples wash their hands according to the traditions of the elders? Or one day, the, uh, the disciples were walking through a field on the Sabbath. They haven't eaten, they're hungry, they're out doing the work of God, and you might remember the story. So they just grab, they, they pluck some grain, and they have a little granola snack there as they're, as they're walking through this field. And when the religious leaders see it, they're super angry, and they tell Jesus, why don't your disciples uh, live according to our human traditions? To which Jesus responded, he says, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. Jesus says you have all these traditions that don't come from God. And in fact, not only do they not come from God, but they interfere with the truth of God and the lives of, of God's people. Another example that we'd find in scripture is, is the Sabbath. So we know that the Sabbath was given by God as a, as a day to benefit people. Uh, as a day for us to rest from work and to honor God and and to be able to commune with God. What we also know that the Pharisees took the Sabbath and they started adding all these rules, can't do this, can't do this, can't do that until there was hundreds of rules attached to the Sabbath and nobody could enjoy the Sabbath anymore and no one could rest on the Sabbath and it actually became a barrier to doing the right thing. So for instance, on the Sabbath, if someone needed your help on the Sabbath, you couldn't help them. That was breaking the traditions of men. If someone's cart got stuck in a ditch, you couldn't help them get that cart out. If they needed medical help, you couldn't help them. If they needed a meal, if the roof was leaking, you couldn't help them in those situations to which Jesus responds in Mark chapter 2 he says to them the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath in other words human tradition has made you slaves to to the Sabbath and this is what human tradition does it takes something that's God given something that's meant to bless us and it attaches so many man made rules that you can't actually identify the thing that came from God anymore and it robs it of meaning human tradition is a problem because it's human It's not spiritual. It's based on our extremely limited knowledge and experience in logic and wisdom. And so he says, be careful of human tradition. A third thing is, he says, this philosophy we need to be aware of is a philosophy that he says is elemental. So I'm using this word because uh, it's a very vague word. The word elemental spirits there, elemental, simply means something that has been arranged in order, something in a row, or something in a series. And it's extremely difficult to translate. In fact, you could open up a bunch of different Bibles, and every Bible will translate it slightly differently. And you can look up some great biblical scholars, and they don't agree on what elemental spirit means. Now some of the options are that it's a reference to the elements that make up the physical world like earth and air and water and fire. Another is it's a reference to the ancient pagan gods that were believed to rule over nations and people and tribes. Two of the more common views that are adopted by um, scholars are that Paul is talking about demonic spirits, which is certainly a possibility here. He's just simply saying this, Satan is real, demons are real, they promote philosophies in the world that uh, oppose the gospel. And in fact, Satan will even use scripture. Remember when, when Jesus was fasting, uh, that the devil came to him and quoted scripture to him. He just twisted it. So he says, be careful because Satan will do this. Demons will do this. And the goal is to deceive believers. Now another option here is that Paul's actually referencing idols, which would have been common in his day. Idols meaning you know, so-called gods or idols uh, that didn't actually exist But people thought they existed. And because they thought they existed. They arranged their lives around them. They worshipped them. They had horoscopes. and, And psychics. And pagan festivals. In 1 Corinthians 8. Paul talks a little bit about this. He says. Therefore. As to the eating of food offered to idols. We know that. And this is helpful. He says. An idol has no real existence. And there is no God but one. So Paul just says. They're not actually real. They don't actually exist. But people arrange their lives around them. So be careful. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, he's just saying in culture, lots and lots of gods and lots of idols. Yet for us we know there is one God, the Father, for whom all things uh, and for whom all things exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So notice he says that they existed in the sense that people thought they existed. And people ended up becoming enslaved to these things. But what they all have in common is that they are opposed to Christ. So he says be careful of the, about this elemental thing and the last thing is this. He says beware of a philosophy that is basically a prison. A prison. He talks about um, a philosophy that takes you captive. The idea in the Greek here is something that carries you away. It's the idea of an army that comes in and conquers a city and carries everyone away as slaves. And he says there is a philosophy that does this. Now, what's interesting about the Greek word for captive here is it's a very rare word and it's just a couple letters away from the Greek word synagogue. In other words, every commentator I read said that Paul probably is, is doing a word play here. He's saying, don't let anyone lock you up in the Jewish synagogue of legalism. Which kind of really tips Paul's hand as to what he's talking about here. He says, be very careful. And the irony is that the divine revelation that came through Abraham and Moses had been twisted into something human and into something worldly. And so Paul warns us against the legalism of Judaism, of rituals and, and rules and festivals and ascetic practices. And Paul warns us because it's It's tempting. I think even today there's, there's something tempting about all of this stuff because it, it feels like when you obey rules and, and rituals, like it feels like you're earning something, like you're checking off a box, uh, like maybe it makes you more spiritually elite than all those Christians who don't do those things that, that you do. And it appears to be superior to regular, regular Christianity. But Paul says, Be careful. Be careful because it's, it's captive. It will take you prisoner if you fall into this. So why would we resist this philosophy? Well, Paul tells us why quite simply. And he's, he's actually said this several times in the book and he'll say it again. In verse 9, he says, For in Christ, in Christ the whole fullness of deity, that is of God, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So, there's a lot we could say about Christology. We have said a lot in this series. We will say a lot in the weeks to come. But I want to focus on something particular here as we wrap this up. Notice that he says the fullness of the deity lives in Christ. Paul's trying to make a point for us today. He's trying to say this that Jesus isn't merely godlike or simply a great example of godly character. Or of morality or spirituality. And I, a lot of people do that today. Let's say, well I don't really believe in Jesus. Or I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. But he was a good guy. Uh, he was a good example to follow. He says here that the fullness of deity lives in Christ. That he was fully God. And that the full revelation of God exists in Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we can know what God is like. Because he was God in the flesh. We can know how to be right with God. We can learn how to walk with God, something we'll talk about in the weeks to come. He teaches us what is true. Uh, He teaches us about what Christ accomplished on the cross for our salvation, about the fact that he did all the work that is needed to walk in Christ, to, to be saved, to be right with the Father. And his main point is this, there's nothing to add. When it comes to being right with God, there's nothing to add to Christ. God fully dwelled in Jesus And believers, notice, are filled in Jesus. So think of it this way. Imagine that uh, I went to the coast uh, and went down to the ocean and I had a jar. And I I walked up, I got in the water and I put the jar down in the water and the jar is filled up with the Pacific Ocean. I can't fit the entire Pacific Ocean in the jar. But the jar is filled or it is In the fullness of the Pacific Ocean, if you will. And that's the picture we get here. He says this, Christ is infinite. And he can hold all the fullness of God in him. Of course, we can't do that. We can't have the fullness of God in us. But we can be filled with Christ. So that we are like that jar. We don't contain all of God. But we are filled with God. With the fullness of God. Kent Hughes put it this way in his commentary. He said, our souls are, uh, so to speak, elastic. And there are no limits to the possible capacity that we have. We can always open to hold more and more and more of the fullness of God. How do we expand our soul to hold more of the fullness of God? Well, we do it through the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We do it as we fill our life with the Word of God. As we read the word, as we meditate on the word, as we hear the word taught, it kind of stretches our soul to, to have more and more of the truth of God. Um, being around spiritually mature people who stretch us uh, is another way through walking in obedience. We'll talk about this in the weeks to come, that as we walk in obedience to Christ, he grows us and our soul, the capacity of our soul to, to hold God, if you will, in us, grows But he says this, if we are in Christ we are filled with the fullness of God. There is no room for anything else. There is no need for anything else. Christ is sufficient for every need that we have. He fills us with faith. He fills us with grace. He fills us with forgiveness. For justification that is being right with God. For sanctification. So let me ask you this, where do you need to live in the fullness of Christ today? Where do you need to experience that? Uh, so uh, on uh, Thursday, I had to go in to the eye doctor and they had to do some, some testing, just some, some regular stuff for me. And one of the things they had to do is dilate my eyes and maybe some of you have, have experienced that before. And it's kind of a whole day dilation. So I go in and they, you know, they do the drops and, and then everything gets all blurry and everything gets super, super bright too. And so I have to kind of wear the sunglasses, if you will. And, um, and I can't see anything at that point and so my wife came with me and when I was done she was going to drive me home and we got in the car and, and, and she drove me which you know you should all be really thankful for that I wasn't driving myself that day uh, but I needed to trust her I needed to trust her so I got in the car and I trusted her to get me home how do I do that? Well, first of all, I asked her if she would help me and then I trusted her to get me home safely and I didn't try to wrestle uh, the steering wheel from her halfway home or tell her how to drive. I just trusted her to get me home safely. I let her have control. This is what we're talking about. If Jesus is in you, then he is sufficient, if you will, to get you where you need to go. He can get you to the Father. He can get you to heaven. He can get you to that place where you are spiritually grown as you walk in Christ. That's what Paul's telling us. When you are in Christ, he has filled you up. See, here's the irony that we would be filled with God, but we would still try to wrestle control from God. He's saying simply let Christ fill you and, and walk in that. And, and don't, don't try to bolster it with a, a ritual or with legalism or with Gnosticism. So let me ask you, where do you just need to recognize the fullness of God in your life today? Maybe there's some decision that you need to make right now, and you're wrestling with that. Why not let God lead you? Scripture says if you need wisdom, ask of God, and he'll fill you. You need to find it. You don't need to find it in someone else or or something beyond the Bible. It says that you can find it from God. Maybe you're dealing with guilt. I hear this a lot right now. Christians will say, I did this thing. I I did that thing. I, I know God forgives me for a lot of stuff, but I don't know if God can forgive me for that. But scripture says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. So part of what it means to be filled with Christ is to just let it go. You don't have to earn that extra salvation. Just accept what God has for you. Maybe you came here this morning and you're really stressed you're really anxious about something and Jesus invites you to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication to let God fill you. In fact, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Jesus gives us an offer. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you notice. I will give you what? I'll give you rest for your soul. Maybe you want to grow spiritually and you feel like you don't have what it takes. Christ says that he does. Let him fill you. Walk in the fullness of that. Maybe there's some relational thing that you're going through today. And you're trying to figure out how to do that. Again, trust Christ. What does that mean to trust Christ in a relationship? It means to to let the fullness of him dwell in you. Let his word dwell in you. So maybe that means you need to forgive someone. Or maybe that means you need to, to love an enemy. Or to serve someone today. Let the fullness of Christ and his word dwell in you. Or maybe you're trusting in some legalistic human tradition to make you good enough. And today, God's saying to to let that go and trust in the grace that God offers to you. Jesus has filled us with himself, and Jesus is enough for us. Let me pray for us, and and we'll close in a song. Father God, I thank you for your word to us today. I thank you that we are reminded that there is a temptation. To think that Christ alone is not enough. That we need to add something. Some ritual. Some human tradition. Something that would make us more acceptable. And we forget. That we are acceptable. Through Christ alone. And that through the work of Christ on the cross. We are absolutely acceptable. We are righteous. We have been justified and Father you have accepted us through Christ we don't have to do anything to earn that we simply walk in the fullness of Christ I thank you for the fact that for those of us who have given our lives to Christ we are filled with Christ and we have everything that we need in Christ to walk through this life in the peace that you offer in the wisdom that you offer in the strength that you offer I pray today that we could let go of all of those things that get in the way of just following Christ alone. We thank you that Jesus has filled us and that he is enough to make us right with you and to show us how to walk with you today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, amen.